Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Summit Church. If you have been gone with us for uh, the course of the summer, I want to say hi to those of you, especially that are worshiping with us in our BC South uh, venue. Uh, we are glad that all of you are back, and we are ready to start with what is going on in the fall. I know that some of you, because you are either new to church or new to this church, um, or uh, because you have been gone for a while, you're like, I feel a little disconnected and want to know how to get back in the swing of things. Um, there are three different things you could take, an, uh, take advantage of or are all listed in your worship guide. One of them is this Tuesday night, there is a vision night um, where we're just going to kind of lay out where we think the future is. It is preceded by a church conference, but it'd be a great way to kind of get your mind around who we are and where we're going. So that's this Tuesday night, this uh, venue, this room right here that I'm standing in. Um, is when we'll do that. And then that next week, perhaps um, one of the most important events we do every year, it's called Group Link, where it is a chance for you to get involved and connected to a small group. It is very low maintenance. It is easy to do. It leaves the power with you, but that's going to happen next Sunday, um, next weekend, and uh, you can get connected to a group, a small group, which is a way of making this really big church feel a lot smaller. And then lastly, you'll notice some stuff in there about the city, which is an online community point, online connection. Um, that you can take advantage of, and uh, it's a great way to make sure that you know what's going on here at the summit, all right? All those things are in your worship guide. You can follow them, the trail of where they tell you, and if you're super cool, do the QR codes, not while I'm preaching, but you can do them later, and, uh, and you find out everything that you need to know, okay? All right, um, let me take you a little bit this morning into my past. Um, I, uh, I, I learned to share the gospel when I was a teenager, um, that's right after I came to Christ. I came to Christ in my teenage years. I learned to share the gospel by means of uh, what we call a gospel tract. Um, it looks something like this. I don't know if you are familiar with one of these. How many of you grew up in churches where these were used quite a bit? Raise your hand and testify, okay? Um, there you go. All right, well, if you're not familiar with it, it is a short kind of trifold pamphlet that explains the basic points of the gospel. Um, at the Christian bookstore near my house, um, there was no end to the different kinds of these that were, were, um, were offered, uh, depending on your personality, depending on how you wanted to do it. It's just a whole rack of them. Uh, you had the no-nonsense, give-it-to-me-straight and alliterated version. Uh, that was the Baptist version. Then there, was the, uh, then there was the creative play off of a cultural symbol version. Uh, I found this one and actually ran it off for you, so we got it there. Um, that is not a joke. That was an actual one that we used. Um, then there was uh, one of the worst ones, the fake $10 bill with the, here's a real tip, trust Jesus um, admonition on the back version. Um, actually, I got a picture of that one for you. Um, my, my counsel to you is never, ever, 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 ever leave that as a tip for a waiter or a waitress who is excited and then you, you know, hey, disappointed. Um, you know, there's not many things that we will just, we consider unforgivable sins at the Summit Church. That is one of them. We will kick you out of this church. Um, without any questions. Um, we, you, you can't de defend yourself. Well, you're just out. Um, then the deluxe tracks were called uh, Chick Tracks. Um, they featured, I have one here, um, they featured a multi-page comic theme that had scary pictures of demons in them um, that are coercing people into listening to Christian rock music or reversions other than the KJV. Um, that, was like the, that was the varsity version. Now, we learned to give these uh, tracks to waitresses or to those people that were seated next to us on airplanes, um, especially if they looked nervous during takeoff or landing, that was a key time to deliver them. Um, if personal interaction made you uncomfortable, you just didn't really like people, um, then you could just place them stealthily in public restrooms on top of the urinal um, or leave them in VHS tapes that you were returning to Blockbuster. 
I'm not joking about that one. We put them in there, and you put it, there's the next person that opens up the movie. There it is. There's the track. Um, this is an actual picture I, I found in doing a little research here. Um, might be one of the worst pictures I have ever seen in my life. Witnessing has been accomplished. Um, one of my favorites was, uh, this is an actual strategy. You could pay the toll booth attendant the fare of the person in the car behind you and then ask them, the toll booth attendant, to give the track to the person that was in the car behind you because you paid their toll. Um, one pastor even showed me how to hold a track next to your car and release it so that it would land at the feet of somebody who was standing on the side of the road. Um, he told me how, how fast you'd have to be going. He calculated it out, practiced it a bunch. Here's how you, the angle you hold it out so it lands right there at the feet of somebody. I wish that I were joking about some of this. Um, not a word that I've said is joking. It was all, that's the way we did it. Now, the whole focus of the track was usually to get somebody to pray a prayer that was printed at the end. It was the sinner's prayer. Um, you prayed the prayer, you asked Jesus to come into your heart, you would ask for forgiveness of your sins. And if they prayed that prayer, there were a number of things that you were supposed to tell them immediately in response. You were supposed to encourage them to start reading the Bible and to pray and to go to church. But you were all supposed to, supposed to say something like this to them. Now that you have prayed this prayer to accept Jesus as your Savior, you are saved forever. You are guaranteed to go to heaven. He promises never to leave you or forsake you, and no one can pluck them out of your Father's hand. So from here on out, you are saved no matter what. Welcome to the family of God. And sometimes they would even tell you, at this point, stick your hand out and shake their hand and welcome them into the family of God. Now, did you know that a 2011 Barna study shows that 50% of Americans say that they have prayed a prayer just like that one at some point in their life? Maybe it didn't happen at the end of a gospel track presentation. Maybe it's because they saw Billy Graham on TV, or maybe it's because they came to a church and they prayed a prayer at the end, or, or their grandma led them through it. 50% of people in our culture say that they have prayed a prayer like that one. However, the same study revealed that less than half of that group goes to church on any regular basis. More than half of them think that the Bible is wrong in a number of things that it teaches, and about two-thirds of them have lifestyles, that studies showed, that in no significant way differ from those that are on the outside of the Christian faith. Now, when these people, these, this 50% of this culture that I talk to, when you tell them that they need Jesus to be saved, their immediate thought is, oh, been there, done that. I've prayed the prayer. I've been to the class. I've been baptized or confirmed or whatever. I'm good. My grandma was there. It was super meaningful. I got a little thing in my Bible. It has a name on it and a date, and I know when I prayed that prayer. But what I want to show you today is that the Bible speaks frequently about a kind of faith that is superficial, a faith that doesn't go very deep, and a faith that does not save at all. That's what you're going to see from John chapter 2. The tragedy is that for a lot of people like this, a lot of people, their superficial faith has immunized them from understanding their need for the real gospel. Immunize, you know how immunization works? Immunization, you know, or at least some immunizations, they give you just a small amount of the disease, usually a dead, impotent version of the disease, so that your body develops the antibodies to be able to defend itself against the disease if you're, ever in, if you're ever exposed to the real thing. A lot of people stay immune to the real gospel because they have the antibody of superficial religion. This is a group of people who can't believe in Jesus because 
their superficial religion keeps them from seeing why Jesus' invitation for them to come to him is even relevant to them. Like, I already prayed that, I already, I already believe. And I want to show you how specifically Jesus addressed that group. You see, we're starting a new series today called Can't Believe. And we're going to look over the next seven weeks at seven different stories from the Gospel of John of people who, for whatever reason, couldn't believe, could not believe. Some of these people couldn't believe because they had a blind spot. Some of them wanted to believe, but for whatever reason felt like they couldn't. We're going to look at the sexual captive. We're going to look at the skeptic the distracted, the hurt, and the disappointed. We're going to look at the coward. We're going to look at the moral failure. But today, we're going to look at the religiously immunized. We're going to see how Jesus engaged seven different individuals who couldn't believe in the Gospel of John. Believing, you see, is a major theme in the Gospel of John. He uses the word over 99 times in the book. And he says toward the end of the book, this is why I wrote it, John 20, 31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that he is the son of God, and by believing you would have life in his name. So it's why he wrote the whole book. So if you feel like, for whatever reason, you can't believe, or you have trouble believing, or you know somebody that has trouble believing, then the book of John is written for you. And in fact, it might be great to bring, that if you have a friend who has trouble believing, it'd be great to bring them over the next several weeks, either invite them here or to your small group, because that's what we're going to be looking at from the Gospel of John, is how Jesus addressed people who had trouble believing. If you haven't opened your Bible already to the Gospel of John, now would be a great time to do so. Um, good news, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, John's the fourth Gospel, it's easy to find. Um, it, it, you only have to find it one time for the next seven weeks, mark it, and then we'll just keep coming back there for the next seven weeks. My hope and my prayer summit, listen, in this series, is that for many of you who feel like you can't believe, God would use this stuff that's in these stories that are in the Gospel of John to open your eyes to the glory of who he is. Because John 1.14 says that is, is how, that is how you learn to believe, is by seeing the glory of Jesus John 1.14, we beheld his glory, the glories of the only one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, we see that, and that, that empowers us to believe. So my prayer is that he would open your eyes. My prayer is, secondly, that you would not only believe, but you would learn to adore him. That you would, your heart would well up in worship. That if you are already a believer in Jesus, you would see him again, fresh, new. Maybe, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes you notice when you get familiar with something that's really beautiful, you forget how beautiful it is. I remember when I moved to Wake Forest um, several years ago, 15 years ago, um, when I moved into Wake Forest, um, th th there's a little like drive into Wake Forest that's kind of canopy by trees. It's one of those beautiful things, beautiful drives I'd ever been on. And I remember thinking how beautiful it was. Well, after I'd been there several months and driven it, you know, a hundred times, I just forgot about it. And then, you know, I have a friend come visit and we're driving in. He's like, whoa, look at this. This is just incredible. Because I'd forgotten how how beautiful it was. I'm praying that through this series you will see again in these stories the beauty and the glory of Jesus so that the eyes of your heart would again be open to worship and adoration. And then I'm praying that that adoration would send you out in confidence to face life and would send you out in boldness to tell the world about the glory of who he is. You see, ultimately, it is a vision of Jesus that empowers everything in the Christian life. That's why one of the most frequent words that's repeated other than believe throughout the Gospel of John is look. In Greek, edu, behold, look, look at him. Because when you see him for who he is, then you will see what he can do in your life. You will, you will, you will have courage because you see his finished work. You are lifted out of depression through a vision of Jesus. 
It is a vision of Jesus that empowers belief. It is a vision of Jesus that inspires courage. It is a vision of Jesus that empowers sacrifice. It is a vision of Jesus that is the source of everything in the Christian life. So what we pray is that you would see. I'm not telling you a bunch of stuff to go do. I'm saying see, and when you see, you will do. So group number one of those who can't believe, here's our first group, the religiously immunized. The religiously immunized, verse 23 of chapter two. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, there were many who believed in his name. See that, they believed. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust, if you have your Greek Bible open, you'll see that the word entrust is the same word for believe. Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. Now here you've got a group of people who believed in Jesus, but it says that Jesus would not give himself to them because he could see that their faith was superficial. You could almost say that they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them because he knew what was in them and he could see that their interest in him was just a fleeting interest. It was a convenient belief. They believed because they had seen the signs and they were temporarily impressed. They were curious as to what else Jesus could do for them. But their belief, Jesus knew, would never withstand the test of time or temptation or trial. Jesus was for them the the, the, the best of all the options. They're like, well, he's better than all the other religious leaders. I don't know what else I would be. So yeah, I'm a fan of Jesus. Now, in our day, this might refer to that large group of people in our culture who believe because it's what their parents believed, what their grandma believed. It's what a lot of their friends believe. It's just kind of what is convenient. You ask most college students, are you a Christian? And they're like, well, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not Jewish. So yeah, I guess I am a Christian. Jesus would not give himself to these people in John 2, even though they had a certain type of belief. Now, in chapter 3, he's going to show you, in contrast, what real faith looks like. Remember that in the writing of these books, the original authors didn't put chapters and verses in there. That's something we added in later. So what you see is that chapter 2 and chapter 3 are conjoined, and that, watch, the stories in chapter 3 are given as an answer to the problem that's raised in chapter 2. And the problem in chapter 2 is, what kind of faith saves? What kind of, if there is a kind of belief that Jesus does not give himself to, then what kind of belief does Jesus give himself to? That's, that's what we're going to see in chapter 3. But before we get into that, write this down if you take notes. Number one, the dangers of superficial belief. The dangers of superficial belief. That's what you're seeing at the end of John 2. There is a kind of belief that immunizes you from the understanding that you need the real thing. John 2, by the way, is not the only place that we get this picture. Matthew chapter 7, a passage that used to scare me to death when I was in high school, talks about um, a group of people that are going to stand on the last day at at the judgment. And they're going to look at Jesus and they're going to say, Lord, Lord Jesus, it's good to see you, man. We went to church. Man, we we went on mission trips. We shared Christ with people. We read our Bibles. We gave in the offerings. And Jesus is going to say the most terribly shocking words that have ever been uttered in the universe to them. He's going to say, depart from me because I never knew you. I never, I never gave myself to you. And they're going to be shocked to hear that because they thought that they knew Jesus because they believed in him and because they'd gone through some initial things at church. I, you know, I don't know a, a lot about that group at the end, but I know that it says that they are many, which means many that think they're on the road to heaven who are actually on the road to hell. Luke chapter 8 is another place where Jesus warned about it. He talked about some seed that went into the ground. 
I use this one a lot here at our church because I think it's so alarming. And it says that the seed sprang up quickly, that it, gave, it brought fruit quickly. It looked like a great plant. But then after the sun came out and the weeds grew up, these seeds died away. And I've often asked you, do these seed, these quick plants, do they represent saved or unsaved people? And the answer is they're unsaved people who for a while look like they're saved people. I mean, they, they, they come, they get baptized, they, they pray the prayer, right? They, 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 they go through the initiatory things, they go to the class, whatever it is. They start, they look good, but it doesn't pass the test of time. And Jesus warns that there's a lot of people who start that are not on the road to heaven. David Platt, a pastor friend of mine whom I've discussed this with a lot and who I heard teach through this passage recently, which is where I got the idea to present it to you, says this, listen, quote, Jesus is not talking in John 2 about irreligious pagans, atheists, or agnostics. He's talking about deeply, devoutly religious people who are deluded into thinking that they are saved when they are not. He's talking about men and women who will be shocked one day to find that though they thought they were on the narrow road that leads to heaven, they were actually on the broad road that leads to hell. People who believed but were not born again. Now again, listen, 50% of Americans say they prayed a prayer asking Jesus into their heart. Even though half of them never go to church, even though two-thirds of them have lifestyles that are not significantly different than people outside the Christian faith. Y'all, if the group that is being described in John 2 or Luke 8 or Matthew 7 are not talking about them, I don't know who they could be talking about. The question presented in John 2 is, what kind of belief saves? And that is an eternally important question. Because most of you, most of us, 50% of Raleigh Durham, it's probably higher in the South, says that they are okay, that they've done that. Is it possible? That's all I want you to think about. Is it possible that your faith is what is described here in John 2, 23? Is it possible that you would be in that group? So that leads to number two, a description of saving faith. We've got the danger of superficial religion or superficial belief. Now we've got number two, a description of saving faith. Chapter three. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler, a religious ruler of the Jews. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night, which is why my kids, kids call this story Nick at night, all right? And this man said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. You see, he's tying it back to verse 23. Nicodemus saw the signs and believed, so that's why you connect these two stories. He's one of the people Jesus was talking about in verse 23. Verse three, Jesus answered him, I love it, answered him. Did Nicodemus ask a question? Did you see an interrogative in that statement? No, because Jesus had this way of answering the questions you should have been asking. So Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, born again is a phrase that's familiar to us. It's common in our culture. President Jimmy Carter, I think, was the first one who kind of made it famous. But to Nicodemus, it was unfamiliar. Now, he'd never heard it. He hadn't read the Gospel of John. And so it sounds absurd to him. And so he asked what we would have asked had we heard that for the first time. Verse 4, how could a man be born when he's old? How could he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That sounds impossible. And it sounds, even if it is possible, it sounds awkward. I mean, how do you do that? How are you born again? Verse 5, 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Genuine saving faith turns on one phrase, one phrase. You must be born again. You must be born again. That is the answer to the problem in verse 23 of chapter 2. you got to be born again. Jesus said, truly, truly. Now, here's the thing. Jesus was not one prone to exaggerate. And usually, he did not qualify what he's saying by saying, oh, now I'm telling you the truth. He always told the truth. He never exaggerated. He was himself the truth. So when Jesus, who was himself the truth, drops a truly, truly, not just one truly, but truly, truly, when he drops that, it means you better pay attention because I who am the truth and saying something, I feel the need to qualify twice. Truly, truly, you must be born again. Do not miss the scandal of this. Nicodemus was a deeply religious man, a religious leader, a respected church person, in our terms, church person. He was a leader, get this, in the right religion. And Jesus was telling him that despite all of his good works, despite all of his learning, all of his church attendance, all of his religious rituals, he was dead in his sin. You see, the gospel is bad news before it is good news. And this is where most people miss the gospel because they'll never really grapple with the bad news. But see, it's where Jesus started his gospel presentation and where we must start too. And I will, listen, I'll just be very clear with you. If this does not offend you, especially if you're kind of new to this whole thing, if it does not offend you, if it does not at some point in the next few minutes as I unpack this make you want to get up and leave, then you're probably not hearing it right. It was as offensive in Jesus' day, it was intended to be offensive as it is today because what the Bible is doing is it is humbling you because it is trying to say there is no possible way you will ever see the kingdom of God on your own strength, your own work, your own value. It's got to be a gift that's given to you from above. Our sin, you see, cut us off from God and left us spiritually dead. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve severed their connection with God. They wanted to be in charge, not God. They rejected God so they could have what they wanted. Well, around here we call sin the big I problem. That's how you spell sin, S-I-N, middle letter. It's when I do what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. I want to be in charge. I want to serve myself. I want to have other people serve me as well. I want all the glory. I want to be the primary point of my and everybody else's life. That is the path that Adam and Eve started down in Genesis 3, and it is the path that all of us voluntarily have continued down ever since then. Our lives exist in a state of rebellion against God. You might not think that you are all that bad, and relatively speaking, you probably aren't that bad, but as a race, we have committed cosmic treason. We have committed an unspeakable blasphemy. We have said to the creator of the universe, I want to be in charge of my own life. I want the glory. I want the attention. I get to decide what's right for me, not you. My agenda, my interests are much more important to me than yours. Our sinful rebellion against God was infinitely worse than most of us have ever imagined. Because if we imagined it, we would be on our face before God saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, that choice left us as a race condemned under a curse, death. That's what God said in Genesis 2, the soul that sins will die. So death is at work in us and around us. You can see that, can't you? 
You can look around in our world and see the effects of death, famine, pain, disease, injustice, genocide. These are all aftershocks of the curse of death. We can feel it at work in ourselves. Corruption, weariness, dysfunction in our relationships. We hurt those sometimes that we love the most. This is all a symptom of death at work in us. You look down in chapter three, toward the very last verse in the chapter, John 3:36 says that we exist as a race under the condemnation. The wrath of God abides, it remains on us. Which means that what we need is not religious improvement. We don't need a slight alteration or a mid-course correction. We need to be completely reborn from above. Paul says in Romans that our minds are blinded that we are disordered in our emotions. We are naturally curved in upon ourselves. We are defiled in our bodies. In Ephesians, he says that we are children of wrath. He's, John says in chapter three, verse 20, look down at that verse, that we are lovers of darkness. Genesis six says that our thoughts are laced with evil continually. That's why we must be born again. Jesus told Nicodemus that in his sinful flesh, he could not hope to even see the kingdom of God. In our sinfulness, we could no more hope to stand in the presence of God any more than a wilted dandelion could hope to withstand the blast of a nuclear bomb. Sin did not merely knock us down or put us on God's JV squad or put us on probation or put you on a slower track to get to your mansion in heaven. Sin wiped you out completely. Now listen, you're not gonna hear this verdict on humanity on Dr. Phil or Oprah, but that's where Jesus started the gospel and it's where we must start too. Francis Schaeffer, who was kind of a, philosopher, Christian thinker, um, about 50 years ago, Francis Schaeffer was asked one time, if you had one hour with a modern person who'd never heard of Christianity, if you had one hour like, say on a plane trip, what would you do with that hour? Francis Schaeffer says this, listen, I would spend the first 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he really is morally dead. Then I would take the last 10 or 15 minutes to preach the good news of the gospel to him. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we're too anxious to get to the answer without ever having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt and not just psychological guilt feelings in the presence of God. We're presenting Jesus as the answer, but people don't know the question or the problem. It is not until you understand the problem and the question that you begin to adore and worship Jesus. Jesus said it's those who are forgiven much, love much, the reason some of you are bored with Jesus, the reason some of you don't love Jesus is because you have no concept of the wickedness that is you and what he saved you from when he came to earth. Because when you understand that, you either run away from him in hatred and anger or you fall at his feet in adoration and worship and love. Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, Jesus said, you must be born again. Unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he will never enter the kingdom of God. Now what's that mean, water and the spirit? Well see, Jesus, New Testament scholars tell us, is referencing a quote from Ezekiel 36. Let me read that, that um, verse to you, Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. From your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, water and spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
And in its place, I will give you a soft, warm heart made of flesh that beats, that feels. You're no longer going to be hardened and cold in your sin. You're going to come alive with love for me and love for righteousness. And I will put my spirit directly into you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful, or you could read that, to desire to obey my rules. We need to be washed with water. That water is not the water of baptism. That water is Jesus' blood that cleanses us from our sin. We need to be made new. We need a new heart that desires God. You see, God does not want us obeyed him simply because we're threatened with hell if we don't obey. He wants us to obey him because we desire him. He wants us to be his because that's what we want to do. We need a new heart, not a heart that is threatened into obeying him because we're afraid if we don't, he's going to withhold blessing or give judgment. He wants us to be with him because we desire it. So what the gospel is after is not just obedience that is conforming to a set of rules. It is after an obedience that grows out of the heart, obedience that comes from desire. This is, I've used this before, but this is a little gross, but it gets the point across. I mean, just think of it like this. If somebody threw up right down here in front of church, big pile of vomit right here, there's not a single person in this room that I would need to say, now, the rules of the Summit Church are you cannot get down on your knees and lick up that vomit. I'm serious. You are not allowed. Don't you do it when I'm not looking. It doesn't matter if I'm here or not. It doesn't matter if it's still there when we leave. You cannot come back in and lick this vomit up. Nobody in here needs to hear that, right? Now, if you, if you were a dog, you might need to hear that, right? I, you know, I mean, you're like, oh, warm vomit, half-digested hot dog, awesome, you know? And you're going to lick it up. The dog has to be compelled because the dog desires the vomit. God does not, listen, want spiritual dogs in heaven who are kept away from wickedness and sin because they are threatened if they don't, that God will curse them. God wants people who are in heaven with him because they desire him and they want to know him. So if that's going to happen in you, it's going to be because you have a new heart. It's going to be because the blood of Jesus makes you new. It's going to be because the Spirit rebirths you into his image. God is not just after obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience. The obedience that grows out of desire. The obedience that comes from being reborn. God's not after the submission of slaves. He's after the affection of sons. God wants you to want him. See? And the only way that that can happen is for you to have a new heart, a heart that is not one of stone, not a canine heart in my analogy, but a heart of flesh that he gives you by the Spirit. So he jumps down, go down to verse 14. It's kind of where he picks up his train of thought on this. Verse 14, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a reference to a story. It takes place in Numbers 21. It's only four verses long. Basically, the story is this. Israel is on its way into the promised land. And as they're going into the promised land, they forget the goodness and the faithfulness of God to them. So their heart begins to wander after other gods. They get impatient. They want to go back to Egypt. They start complaining. And so God, in anger, in righteous anger, sends into the camp, uh, it only describes them as fiery serpents. We don't know what breed of snake that was, but it does not sound pleasant. And it is not the kind of thing that you want in your campsite. Fiery serpents everywhere, thousands, millions probably of them that are going throughout the camp. They are biting people. The people are in excruciating pain, and they are dying. And so they call out to God and say, God, help us. God, deliver us from these fiery serpents. Now, that's kind of a picture of sin, is it not? All sin is essentially that. You grow impatient with God. You think you could do a better job. 
So your heart begins to leave God and go after something else you feel like you must have in order for life to be good. Romance, sex, money, whatever. There's some version of something you need. So your heart departs from God and goes after it. And you see that the fiery serpents are a kind of death. So that death is at work. It's bitten you. It's inside you. It's all around you. So the people call out to God, and God in his mercy says to Moses, I will heal these people. Here's how you're going to do it. He says, I want you to take a pole. And on that pole, I want you to take a, 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 an image, a bronze image of one of these serpents. And I want you to put it high up on the pole and put that pole somewhere where everybody can see it, who wants to see it. And you tell them that if they will look upon that snake on that fiery serpent, that image in faith, then I will heal them. All they have to do is look. Can't you imagine people in that camp whose bodies are consumed with pain, who are desperate, who know that they are hours, maybe minutes from death? as they crawl or have somebody carry them just to get in a spot where they can look up and see that image on the top of that pole. And the moment they see it, the moment they look at it in faith, the moment they acknowledge they're wrong and they surrender, and the moment they believe, healing goes into their body and that venom is gone. Jesus says, just like that, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever looks, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, Jesus, like this image of the serpent, will be lifted up on a cross for our sins so that all who look to him will be saved. I'll be honest with you, it used to confuse me, bother me, when I first learned about this as a kid as to why God would have chosen a serpent to depict his son. I mean, of all the pictures he could have given, why put a snake on top of a, I'm like, why not put a lamb up there or, you know, something that would have been a more flattering picture of Jesus. And then, I can't remember when, but I remember all of a sudden it was making sense to me. The serpent was the result of their sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, he had actually become our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So Jesus, though he was blessed, though he was innocent, died, cursed. He died as a serpent. I had sinned. I had rebelled. The viper of death bit Jesus. And so on that pole, on that cross, that serpent is displayed saying, you're the one who deserved the bite, but God is the one who will become the serpent so that he can die in your place. Because, verse 16, because God so loved the world. God so loved you that he gave his only son to you, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Whoever looks to him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The compassion of God is such, the love of God for you is such, that he said the healing is there. The, he the curse of death is absorbed. All you have to do is look. All you have to do is look. Have you ever so loved something that you would give anything up for it? God so loved you that he took the serpent into himself so that you could look and live. If you've been around this church, you know that one of my preaching heroes is a guy named Charles Spurgeon. If you're unfamiliar with him, he's a 19th century British pastor in London. And one of his biographies, one of the biographers recounts or records Charles Spurgeon's own description of his conversion. All right, it's one of my favorite passages in literature ever. So I just want to, I want to share with you how Charles Spurgeon described his own conversion. You ready? Spurgeon says, I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now. Had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning, 
when I was trying to go to church somewhere. Because it was snowing, I got to a place where I couldn't walk any farther, and so I turned down a side street looking for the first church I could come to, and I stumbled onto a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there could not have been more than a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of those primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I was desperate to know how I might be saved, and if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. So at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he couldn't think of anything else to say. The text was that morning, Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher that morning began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anybody can look. Even a child can look. All the text says is, look unto me. I, he said in a broad SX accent, which I don't really know what that means. I think it's something like the southern twang that people from Pittsburgh have. Um, so that's how you would hear that. Um, he, says, he says, I, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. We must wait for predestination. You ain't got no business with that just now. Look to Christ. That's all the text says. Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone on to, uh, uh, when he had gone on to about that length and had managed somehow to spin out 10 minutes or so, the poor soul was at the end of his tether. He couldn't think of anything else to say. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he must have known I was a stranger. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. <laughs> However, it was a good blow. It struck right home, and so he continued. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life, even more miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I don't know what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw finally the sun. 
And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had just told me that before. Trust Christ, look to Christ, and you shall be saved. And it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered in the providence of God. And so now I can say, ere since by faith I saw that stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. It's just a look. It's just a look that saves. That's the whole theme of the Gospel of John. Behold the Lamb of God. It do. Look. See him. Just look at him in faith and live. The choice is yours. Nobody's stopping you. You can look whenever you want. And you need to look. Because you're dying. You're dying. Like the people of Israel bitten by those vipers. You don't need a moral improvement. You don't need a religious booster. You don't need a fresh start. The wrath of God is upon you. The curse of death is over you. It is at work within you. Like I've heard said, you don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need a new life. You need a gift from above. That's why, honestly, I've never been able to get away from the word saved. I, I probably shouldn't admit this as a pastor, but I don't really like the word saved. I, I, I just, it, it sounds redneck to me. I mean, when I say, you need to be saved, I, I get this image of this pudgy you know, preacher in a Baptist church, says a word in about eight syllables, saved, you know, and I'm like, oh, this sounds so redneck when I say that. But honestly, y'all, in light of the realities, I mean, what's the better word? Helped? You need to be improved? You need a 2.0 version of you? You need to be enhanced? Come to Jesus and be enhanced. Is that, what, is that, is that it? You don't need that. You need to be saved. Because you are dead in your sins, continually dying under the wrath of God, and he's your only hope. That's why when people say to me, oh, Jesus is just a crutch for you, I want to laugh. I'm like, crutch? Jesus is not a crutch. If anything, he's a stretcher, because I couldn't even limp into heaven without Jesus. I was dead, and they put my dead body on that stretcher, and Jesus made me alive. He is new life. So let me again quote my friend David Platt. What we don't need is superficial religion. What we need is supernatural regeneration. We're dead in our sin and we need to be born again. There is a superficial belief that keeps people from genuine faith. And it works like an immunization. You get just enough of it that it makes you immune to the real thing when you hear it. And maybe, maybe, for some of you, that's what you've had. You prayed the prayer, you walked the aisle, you checked the card, you raised the hand. You went to the class. You got baptized. But have you been born again? Have you been infected with the gospel virus? In this analogy, the virus is good, all right? Have you been infected with the real gospel virus? Has life gone to work in you? Here's how you know. You start changing. I mean, a virus, especially a significant one, always changes you. Right? When the gospel goes to work in you, it changes you too. Your mind used to be filled with lots of thoughts of self and lust and pride. Now, holiness and a love and a desire for God is at work. I don't mean to imply that you're perfect or that you don't have to struggle with this or that, like I told you a few weeks ago, that you sit around, you hop out of bed each morning, you know, humming, or humming Chris Tomlin tunes and playing them on the harp you keep beside your bed. I'm not saying that that's what happens. I'm just saying that there is a change that life begins to go to work in you and you start to be different because you are being healed and life is going into work in you. Your spiritual temperature is raised. You got a gospel fever. 
Because your passions for God go up. You're contagious spiritually. Other people start to get infected with your faith. You start sneezing out blessing and generosity all over people. Is that too far? All right, or, but, but you follow what I'm saying? It, there's something, it's life in you. Is that you? Is that you or, or are the people at the end of John 2 a better picture of you? You believe in Jesus, but it's not a belief that's changed you. It's not one that can withstand persecution or isolation or hard times or temptation. You don't really walk with God. I mean, you believe in him, yeah, per se, but there's no relationship there. That's why you never talk to him. I mean, you, you might throw up a perfunctory prayer from time to time, but you don't commune with him. You don't walk with him because it's not relationship for you. It's a, it's a belief that goes into your creed. Your lips say that you believe it, but your life doesn't walk with Jesus as Savior and Lord. If that's true, then isn't it clear that you've got the superficial religion described in chapter two and not the supernatural rebirth described in chapter three? Or to change the analogy, I, I told this to our church a few weeks ago, it, it's almost like this. It's like, imagine that, you know, a few minutes ago when the, what we call the bumper video came on, and, uh, and you know, so it comes on, at the end, the lights come on, I'm supposed to be right here, but I'm not here. And so after like two or three awkward minutes, I burst into the, the door over here on my left, and I'm totally out of breath, right? You know, I, I, I'm kind of sweating, my, uh, you know, my shirt tail's untucked, it's always untucked, but I mean, my shirt, yeah, I look all disheveled and I kind of stumble up here and I'm like, woo! Y'all, I am so sorry I'm late. You would not believe what's happened to me. It, yeah, I was out here. I was trying to come here on Highway 70 and I had a flat tire. So I hop out of the car and I'm on the side of the road trying to change that tire and a couple of the lug nuts roll out in the middle of the road. So I turn to get the lug nuts and I, I look up and wouldn't you know it, there's a semi tractor trailer coming 70 miles an hour down Highway 70. Just runs me over. I mean, just boom, runs me right over. And then the semi slammed on his brakes, trying to figure out what happened, so he backed up, ran over me again. I got ran over twice, and, and, and you know, I was kind of dazed for a minute. I stood up, and I sort of dusted myself off, and asked the driver, he helped me put the tire back on, but it took like a few minutes to kind of work all that out, and so that's why I'm late. Now, your response back to me is, you're lying, because there's no possible way you could get hit with that kind of force and not be fundamentally different. If you got hit by a tractor trailer going 70 miles an hour, you, you walk differently. <laughs> right, you look different. <laughs> you talk differently. There's no part of you that's the same. There's no possible way that you could get hit with the force of new life. No possible way. And just remain the same. So if you've never been born again, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter that you pray to prayer. He's not given himself to you. See, my fear is that we have created, especially here in the South, a culture where millions are comfortable calling themselves Christians when they're not disciples of Jesus. And that category does not exist in the Bible. I, I've even heard it said like this. I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was eight years old. I didn't really accept him as my Lord until I was such and such. I'm like, how do you, how do you get to divide up Jesus that way? Right, this is not a compromise. You're like, I'll take this portion of Jesus, but we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna wait on the, on the whole package. He comes as Lord and Savior. He does not come at all. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm born again. What do I do? How do I know that I'm born again? That's the good news. You just look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus with the same look that they had in Numbers 21, which is a humble look. A humble look that says, I can't save myself. I'm dying 
a look that is repentant or surrendered. I'm wrong. That's what repentance means. I'm wrong. You're right. A look that is believing. A look that says, you are taking this in my place. The way we say it around the Summit Church is, the look that saves is the look that understands that you were so bad, Jesus had to die for you. But he was so loving that he was glad to die for you. One look, one look of humble, surrendered, hopeful faith will save. And one last thing, one last thing. Just because I want to give you some insight into how our church works. Listen, this is why, this is why we are so driven to go to the nations. Because there has been one sacrifice given for all time where Jesus took the curse of death for every person of every culture in every nation in the world. We're not sending people over there to try to tell them to become Americans. We're not sending people over there to try to explain to them the complexities of a religion that they've got to adopt. All we're doing is saying, look, just look. All that you've been searching for, all that you're looking for, it's already been done. When I lived in Southeast Asia, when I lived in Indonesia, there was, there was a Hindu part of Indonesia. It was called Bali. And, and uh, in Bali, they had this, um, this parade. And they do it once a year. It's actually reminiscent of something they do in India where they march down the streets and they put little, um, little hooks and little like lances through their body. Sometimes they'll actually pull like a, like a, like a wheelbarrow of some kind behind them. It's very painful, it's very bloody. They'll walk a couple miles in India and then they'll go bathe in the river Ganges and they'll wash it off and, and they'll explain that we do this because we are being purified from our sin. This is the way that the God, this is the way the gods purify us from our impure motives. This is the way we are changed. This washes us from our defilement. If you know Jesus at all, there has something in you that says, that has to say, You don't have to do that. There's one who was already pierced. There's one who was bled dry so that he could wash you, not in a filthy river, but he could wash you in his blood. It's finished. It's just finished. You just look. You look and you believe and you live. I live amongst a group of Muslims and every year they do what they call the Hajj or once a year they do the Hajj and you're supposed to try to go once in your lifetime and that's where they go to the Mecca, and at one point they all circle this big black rock, and they would cover it on CNN International, and I'd watch it with my friends. This moment where they're all circling this big black rock, the Kaaba, and I remember you, I would ask my friends, what are they, what's going on there? And they would say this, they would say, well, this represents the best, most faithful Muslims in the world. They're all circling this black rock, and they're all crying out to Allah for forgiveness of sins. And we think that out of the million Muslims in the world, there has got to be at least one who is worthy enough for Allah to hear his prayer. And on his basis, we think that God will forgive all the sins of all the Muslims for the next year. Your heart has to say, I know the one that you're looking for. He's not circling a black rock in the desert. He is seated at the right hand of God And he was so worthy that he died an innocent death but became a serpent for you because he so loved you that he didn't look to you to save yourself. He said, I'll save you. And he became the serpent so that you could be saved. And if you look to him and believe, if you look to him and believe, you will be saved. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? And if not, look. 
look and live. Why don't you bow your heads at BC South and BC North, both places. Why don't you bow your heads? Every head bow, just listen here for a minute. You got questions about this? You know that Jesus is Lord. You know he's Savior. You know you can feel that faith for the first time maybe in your life rise up and say yes. Or maybe you just got questions. I invite you right now just to look. It's not a magic prayer you pray. You certainly could express it in a prayer if you want. But it's just looking. It's looking and saying yes, yes, you did it. You did what you said you did. And you are the Lord. I surrender and I believe. Look right now. If you want to express it as a prayer, your prayer would sound something like this. And I would, it's not a magic prayer, so you put in your own words, but here's, the pray, here's what you would express to God. Lord Jesus, I believe that you were hanging on a cross there for my sin. I believe it. I believe it. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord. You're right, I'm wrong. And I surrender. Say that to him. Save me, Jesus. Save me now. Save me now. Now let me address a group of you that are like, you know, I'm not quite there. There's something going on inside me. There's some curiosity. There's this, I don't know what it is. I, Jesus dealt with all kinds of people through the Gospel of John who wanted to believe but were struggling with it. And what he says over and over again, you see this in John chapter 1, he says, come and see, come and see, keep coming. If that's you, that latter group, I'm going to invite you to come back for the next seven weeks to just come and see. See Jesus as how he deals with people and see if faith does not grow in you. See if faith doesn't, before we're done with these seven weeks, lay hold of Jesus. Just come and see. Now here's my question. With every head bowed, listen. We don't do this a lot at the Summit Church, but from time to time, and I think it's important. If you just prayed that prayer with me, a minute ago, and you're like, you know, for the first time I'm getting it, or I'm just not sure about what happened in my past, but I know that this morning, right now, I know that I'm looking, I understand what it means to look and to live, I understand what it means to believe, and with you just a few minutes ago, just a few seconds ago, I prayed that prayer with you. Would you be so courageous in BC South, BC North, anywhere that's, any of our campuses that are listening right now? Would you be so courageous just to raise your hand and say yes? I prayed that with you right now, just a few seconds ago. Raise your hand and hold it up for just a minute. I see you. Hold it up just for a minute. Hold it up. Their hands up all over. You can put it down. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you to do something we don't often do at the church, but it's important. I'm going to invite you to respond, to give us a chance to pray with you, to give us a chance to show you what the first steps of that look like. I know that that can be tough. I know that you came with somebody. They can come with you. In just a second, I'm going to have prayer counselors. They're going to come right down here. In fact, you guys go ahead and move into position right now. Men and women, they're going to come. Just a few of them, they're going to stand right down front here. You're going to come. You're going to, they're going to know why you come. They're going to shake your hand. They're going to show you where we can just talk. That's all we're going to do is just talk a few minutes about the decision. So in just a minute, I'm going to have everybody stand up. And when we stand up, you are going to stand up, and in one motion, you're going to step out. 
if you raised your hand or you thought you maybe should have raised your hand or you just got questions about it, we stand up. If the person beside you that you brought, you think they might have raised their hand or you can tell they're struggling with that, then you just kind of write you up right now and say, I'll go with you. Don't worry. You don't have to go alone. Come with somebody. And we'll just pray together. It's a great way to mark this. So in just a minute, we're going to stand up. You step out immediately. You come. And our worship team will lead us to behold the glory of Jesus. Okay? Now is the moment. Now is the time. Everybody's going to stand right now. You stand to your feet. And those of you that raised your hand, those of you that prayed, you step out right now and you come. Jonathan, KJ, you lead us.